0: Welcome to the OT Digest Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kasparo, the founder of otgraphically.com, where I synthesize research into visually appealing graphics. On this podcast, we take research and make it more fun and interesting in order to quickly hear the most updated evidence going on in occupational therapy all around the world. I interview research authors about what research they've done and what they're currently working on and key takeaways they'd like OT clinicians to know. I hope you can use this information and incorporate it into your interventions the very next day. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, everyone, to the OT Digest podcast. Uh, My name is Katie Casparo and I'm your host again today. I'm very excited to share with you who we have on today. It's Dr. Julene Ratajkowski. She's an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She's an occupational therapist with experience expertise in late life disability and caregiving. Um, Her research program investigates home and community-based rehab services for older adults uh, with cognitive decline and their caregivers. And her research optimizes performance, of and engagement in activities and community participation. Uh, these services minimize hospitalizations, which is really awesome, and institutionalization of vulnerable older adults. And her work has been recognized by a lot of different people, including the UPMC Aging Institute um, and all the papers in Pittsburgh, pretty much. So I've been able to personally benefit uh, from Julian's teaching, and I'm grateful for her expertise and, I really appreciated having her in a class where I could help better understand how to analyze research. So thank you for that too. <laughs> Julian, do you wanna add anything else about your background or um, any other information about that?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, that sounds kind of like who I am. I'm a researcher
0: <laughs> and a teacher. Awesome, where did you go to OT school?
1: I went to um, OT school at the University of Illinois at Chicago Um, And that was where I got my OTD. I was a good millennial and I bounced around for a little bit and I worked in a variety of settings and I landed in Pittsburgh and it was here that I got training in research. I did a postdoc in geriatric psychiatry and got another master's degree in clinical research. And I've um, been a professor at the University of Pittsburgh ever since.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. You did some, you didn't do an OT PhD, right? If I remember. That's remembering.
1: right. Yeah. I, I don't have a PhD, um, but, but I am a researcher. I have the skills of a PhD. And so I, I got those skills through non-traditional training paths, similar to what a physician scientist would do where they have content expertise in their area and my area being OT. Um, but then, you know, I got research training that um, I had to apply to my content area. So my master's degree in clinical research was 30 credits of design and statistics, which is the same type of program that the School of Medicine uses for their physicians who wanna do research. So it was a way for me to um, get the skills that I needed in research and then apply them to rehabilitation.
0: Oh, I didn't know that whole story. Um, I think yeah. that's a great example of how you don't have to go the PhD route. There's Yeah, other- I
1: mean, certainly a PhD is um, more known. And there are not that many people who take a clinical doctorate in occupational therapy, and then go on to become researchers. But I think if you're at an institution that has the infrastructure and a, um, ability to support people to invest in science in non traditional ways, it's possible. Um, I feel lucky that I was able to have a postdoc experience in geriatric psychiatry and get a master's to help me um, you know, learn about design and statistics and come out as a researcher. Like the class that you, that, um, you took from me, Katie, like that was a class on interpreting evidence. And um, it's, so it's maybe unusual to have an OTD teach that type of course, but I, I have been able to gain those skills that are equivalent to a PhD in different ways.
0: Very cool um and what do you like to do for fun or what's your favorite occupation outside of being a researcher I um
1: it was just um Father's Day this past Sunday I have two boys and um my husband and I our our boys were on their bikes they're eight and six my husband and I were running and he had to boost our boys up a hill because Pittsburgh's hilly. um and I I shouted at him I was like happy Father's Day (laughs) um so I'm certainly fortunate to have two young boys that I get to spend a lot of time with and um do active things with so um I would say they are definitely the highlight of my my personal time
0: awesome i can picture that there's probably a hill close by you there's somewhere. a hill <laughs> when i go for a run it's it's a little rough hard to avoid the hills around here
1: yeah you can't avoid them so you embrace them yes exactly
0: <laughs> awesome We're going to shift a little bit to kind of your research and uh, focus um, and kind of where that that came from. Um, So what do you research and where did that interest start?
1: Yeah, I think um, your introduction was really spot on, that I'm really into thinking about rehabilitation in ways that we can support people to live in the community. And, um, you know, thinking about how we support older adults what they do and how they do it to really maximize their ability to live independently is, is really what my research is about. And, um, also with the caregivers, you know, the family members who are supporting their loved ones to live in the home, you know, are we appropriately including them and training them and educating them? And how do we do that? Um, really support both individuals, the caregivers and the, the older adults. I could imagine that you know I wouldn't necessarily be too particular about the how an older adult might be vulnerable, but the majority of my research has really tackled older adults who have subtle changes in their thinking and memory. Maybe they have enough changes in their thinking and memory that it would show up diagnostically. They don't have enough changes that they would receive a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. They're kind of at this in-between state. And um, I'm really interested in thinking about rehab and supporting these people who we know are vulnerable, who we know are likely going to decline. And can we support them then? Can we be a little bit more proactive in the occupational therapy services that we provide them?
0: Working in a nursing home, oh, for I did that as both a- kind of part of my uh, observation hours. I was an activities assistant somehow. I don't know how I got that job, but a little underqualified, but, um, and being, doing it as my field work, I think, yeah, that's such a a need. And I think a lot of people, um, even just not just in their OT lives, but in their personal lives feel this, that struggle. So I think that's such an important topic.
1: Yeah. I think it's really heartbreaking to think about families that know something is changing or you know working I worked in nursing homes too and to hear family members say things like well we kind of knew something was going to happen or you know like oh we were waiting for something to happen it's um it feels like we're at a point in time where we should know better that like we could provide something to people before a catastrophic fall happens, um, that maybe we can support their environment, support their daily activities and support their family members who are supporting them a little bit more proactively just makes a lot of sense. Um, it's like, not that it's not like rocket science, right? It's just, um, and so that's really where my research lies is like, just thinking, can we do as well as we can do by older adults and you know, with the majority of my work, those who have subtle changes in thinking and memory or, or have mild cognitive impairment as someone might also call it.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard mild cognitive impairment um, more frequently. Now you um, have done a study about assessing that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um,
1: mild cognitive impairment is a diagnostic term. Someone could talk about mild cognitive impairment, not diagnostically, like they have subtle change, they have a change in thinking and memory, but but there are criteria um, that are associated with the diagnosis of MCI in the DSM-5. It's called mild neurocognitive disorder, and um, you know for a diagnosis of MCI or mild neurocognitive disorder. You know, you have to have on paper and pencil tests of thinking and memory that a neuropsychologist would use measurable changes in, in, um, in how someone in, completes those activities. There's another criterion there that's like right up the alley of occupational therapy, which is that there are um, maybe quality differences or not overt disability, but some disability in daily activities. And um, it's from an occupational therapy, so interesting. How do we operationalize that? How do we detect what that change means? And if they have that type of change, can we build an intervention around it to support them? Um, And so I, I, I was fortunate to be able to do some of that work, to look at older adults who have mild cognitive impairment and another set of older adults who didn't have mild cognitive impairment. And we compared their performance on an observation-based standardized assessment of daily activities. Um, And we found that how they scored on their daily activities was different between the two groups. That those who had mild cognitive impairment had more prompts or cues that were required to complete the task than those who had normal cognition. So it was kind of one of those studies that kind of said, yes, we can detect the subtle changes in daily activities that people with MCI have. It is different in their daily activities than those who have normal cognition.
0: Yeah. That's really helpful as a clinician to be able to have that, that tool yeah. in our toolbox.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think for a clinician, if you imagine someone with dementia has overt disability and basic activities of daily living, they're having trouble dressing, they're having trouble showering and completing those tasks. With someone who has MCI, It'll show up in more cognitively challenging instrumental activities of daily living, something like medication management or financial management. Um, And in a lot of facilities, clinicians have access to standardized observation-based assessments. And that's where you could really detect whether someone has changes in those cognitively challenging tasks that might warrant intervention. Um, Yeah. I mean, I use the performance assessment of self-care skills that was developed by Joan Rogers and Margo Holm. Um, And so that would be one that I would say has the sensitivity to be able to detect the differences between MCI and normal cognition in older adults.
0: That was my next question. You beat me to it. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any assessments that you would say are outdated in that?
1: Well, I mean, our... uh, I think technology is rapidly evolving. And I think our use of assessments is rapidly evolving. I, I know that, you know, we want to move to a point of having things that are tech-based. You know, I, this is, you know, an example that I'd throw out of like an ATM on a screen and like how someone navigates the clicks and, and use of something like that would be lovely. Um, so I do think there's a new generation of, uh, of assessments, performance-based, standardized, cognitively challenging assessments that are in development, and I hope will be on the front lines for clinicians in the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, but, but we still have pillboxes, like they're not going away, you know? And so we still have ways in which um, we can assess with our, like, good old fashion, daily activities, things like medication management, that that's not really going to change anytime soon.
0: Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned pillboxes. I feel like that's gonna, that's just going to be needed no matter what. Um, But I recently, um, I worked with a kiddo who um, is working on medication management as a teenager. And the amount of pillboxes on Amazon is just there's a lot of um, There's a lot of variety of pillboxes now that are all different shapes, sizes, colors. And yeah. So yeah, it's kind of fun to go through them, but still a pillbox,
1: still a pillbox, still morning, noon, and night still seven days a week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really helpful. I think to know um, what's out there and kind of that there's some things coming down the line too as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a clinician like, you know, definitely should feel empowered that they already have what they need. They already have, um, you know, a pill box, and inf- that they could tap into. And um, and you know that the ability to assess someone's ability to safely manage pills um, is like a very valid way to to kind of get a glimmer of whether there's a, anything happening there in someone's processing skills or you know, ability to follow through on a task.
0: Now, is there any other um, research projects that are, I don't know what time that study came out, but any, you know, recently that have come out that you wanted to share about? Yeah,
1: sure. I, um, you know, if, if I go back to like my heart as an occupational therapist, it's, it's so often that we think about assessment and intervention. And so that's definitely an assessment-oriented um, work that I've done, but I think my heart really lies, it lies in the interventions and in the interventions that people do. So um, I have a large study that's going on right now. It's a five-year study that was um, funded by the National Institute on Aging, one of the centers within NIH. And um, it's looking at um, a standardized intervention for older adults with mild cognitive impairment. And so we're enrolling older adults who have subtle changes in their thinking and memory, who are living in the community. And we're using principles um, to help them generate strategies that they can use to effectively engage in meaningful daily activities. So the older adults get to choose. They get to choose activities that they need to do, want to do, or expected to do. and the occupational therapist maybe doesn't tell them how to reach their goals, but will help guide them through that process of identifying strategies that are effective and helping them try it and kind of checking in and seeing did that work, did that not work? How could we update those plans? And so it's a, it's a great opportunity to see how an intervention could maybe support the engagement in daily activities for older adults who have who are vulnerable for further decline in daily activities, can we help maintain them um, in their daily activities for as long as possible?
0: Is that a hard conversation to find the people and mm. them willing to be part of a study?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, that's a great question because I imagine at some point in the future that it would be a wonderful service that was tapped into something like primary care where people are coming in and people are um, getting services, but maybe there's an opportunity there for occupational therapy to be one of the referrals that someone gets. This is my hope. And um, for now, what I, the way that this work is done is really finding people with, um, who are interested in having their daily activities ma- maximized who are living in the community. So it's lo- a lot of boots on the ground, um, supporting older adults where they're at, finding them where they're at and um, you know engaging with them in the community.
0: I think that makes sense kind of saying, using that motivation of wanting to stay in your home. Yeah. Too. I could see that being a uh, good motivator for wanting to work on some of the Yeah,
1: yeah, certainly. I think, you know, we're very OT in our uh, our research and we're really about the daily activities and how people are doing them. Not so much about the fact that they have mild cognitive impairment. And of course, we're um, a highly rigorous research study. So we have tight inclusion and exclusion criteria to make sure that we're finding the people that we think we're gonna be finding um but then you know it's all about daily life and things that they want to do in their
0: daily life and you said you're focusing on community based but are there, are there any other ot settings that you think some of these things you're working on could apply to
1: yeah i think um i think that this type of intervention framework maybe isn't um has a, it has a lot of potential to be applied to a lot of different um groups of individuals i think you know, there's been some work that has come out within the OT field of kind of distinguishing between guided skill-based training versus more like directed or, um, you know, repetitious training and kind of distinguishing where someone falls and whether someone needs more repetition and, you know, I maybe call it errorless learning to allow them to continue to engage versus someone who can have some stumbling blocks. Maybe they'll benefit from having an error. Maybe they'll benefit from a failed experience because then they'll learn what strategies really work for them. Um, And so I think there's a lot of different groups of individuals that would benefit from learning from errors. And I'd put myself in in that category of, I learn a lot when I make mistakes. And so, um, you know, I think there's definitely room to think about a variety of groups where this could be an interesting research question. I happen to focus on one um, just because I'm a researcher, but I definitely could see application. And there are other researchers at other institutions that are tackling questions
0: like this. You know, I feel like every time I have a question, um, there's always somebody working on it, which is really cool to see that there are things that as a clinician I would want to know is being addressed. So that's really cool to hear.
1: I think we're at like an exciting time in our field where um, where we're at a point in time where there are a lot of researchers who are tackling clinically relevant questions in a lot of different ways. Um, I think it, I totally agree that it's really exciting to flip through, well, scroll through a journal and, um, kind of see the different types of questions that people are tackling and, and why they're tackling it and the findings that people have.
0: So kind of bouncing off of that idea, is there anything you want OT clinicians to know specifically about how they can put into practice what you have researched? Um, gosh, that sounds so, um,
1: relevant to think about you know my own work in itself, but I, I, I could never think that um, specifically about myself. but I, I do think like a lot of the, the strategies that are being tested, um, that there's a real opportunity for us to like know that we already have that opportunity and that skill set to do best by our clients, that we have assessments that exist. That we have interventions if we are, you know, trying to provide the best services to our clients that we can practice at the top of our license and assess daily activities, intervene upon daily activities and make sure that we're doing it in a a client oriented way. Um, You know, it's not a separate skill set to do that. Like we're already equipped and ready. Um, So I think a lot of the research is that's coming out is really showing that like, yes, this is a positive way to move forward with a variety of clients.
0: And when you say it, it, um, from my understanding, you're talking about strategy training specifically. Um, Is there any like I know the co-op method, are there other methods that are um, you would say you pull from?
1: Yeah, I think another one that's out there that, um, you know, co-op strategy training. And I would say like some people will even call it like metacognitive strategy training. Those are all really sister related, um, definitely have components that are different from one another, maybe applied to a certain population slightly differently. Um, But some of the core principles are, are, you know, across all of them.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing that a lot, not just in older adults, but when I work with kids on things like handwriting and that it's actually that self-reflection piece that's the most powerful. Uh, so that's really interesting how much that applies to so many different areas.
1: Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more that reflecting on our own experiences and adjusting going forward is definitely a positive method, um, positive you know, framework and method for us to all use.
0: Are there any, um, resources you would suggest to someone who's maybe trying to start or, um, yeah, any other, any resources you would share that are helpful, um, when thinking about your research or even just strategy training, particularly? Um, any resources
1: that are particularly helpful? I mean, there've been some great OT practice articles that have come out recently, um, that have kind of talked about cognition and thinking about like different ways in which cognition, you know, we can help people with cognition. So maybe it's just tapping into AOTA and um, kind of seeing some of those pieces that have come out there would probably be a great place to get started.
0: I think I've seen something on functional cognition. Yeah,
1: totally. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I didn't, I wasn't quite sure what that wording meant. So that's helpful. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, um, functional cognition is using your thinking and processing skills to engage in daily activities. So it's not just thinking, it's not just daily activities, but it's the combination of all of it together. Um, so inherently when I was talking about, you know, older adults with MCI and their engagement in daily activities, I'm talking about their functional cognition. I'm talking about how they're able to use their thinking and processing skills to be able to complete these cognitively challenging tasks.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> make it come co- Sometimes I make it more complicated in my brain than it needs to be. So.
1: Yeah. It's just that true integration. You know, it's not just the manual part. It's not just the cognitive part. It's the integration of the two to be able
0: to complete the tasks. That makes a lot more sense. I feel like that's what you did in class all the time. You would just make a really complicated thing. So simple and be like, oh, that's what it was. Okay. <laughs> Research isn't so scary. No, not at all. Um, anything else that you, um, any other takeaways you have or any other things that you wanted to share about your work?
1: No, I don't think so. This has been really fun um, to kind of talk about, you know, not only my non-traditional training path, but, um, some of the work that I'm doing for older adults who have mild cognitive. Impact.
0: Yeah, it's super, well, I think it's super up and coming. I'm not like super into the, um, the older adult population research, but when I am, it seems like it's really cutting edge. And, um, thank you for all the work you've done. I have never seen a longer CV, I think. Oh. <laughs> I just kept scrolling. I was like, there's a lot of references. Here. <laughs> um, but... there are
1: definitely longer ones out there. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, thank you so much, Julian. I really appreciate it. And how, if somebody would like to reach out to you or get more information, what's the best way to do that? Um, you could find my
1: email on Pitt's website. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, you can Google Julian Radakowski at Pitt and then I'll, I'll pop up. Um, yeah, so that, that, um, you know, certainly reach out to me.
0: Sounds good. And I'll put, I was just writing down some of the things during, um, our conversation, but I'll make sure to put that in the notes. So if you want access to, um, the past that she talked about, as well as, um, some references on AOTA, I'll make sure to put that in the notes. So, um, you can kind of find that there and reach out to one of us. If you have any questions, uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, that you're listening. Um, and I, um, hope I, I know this will be helpful for many people. So thank you so much again for being on the OT Digest podcast. Yeah, thank you.